Hi, I'm Dr. Beth Greek Polelli. I'm the Mayor Chair of Holocaust Studies at Pacific Lutheran University. And today we'll be talking about my most recent book, Anti-Semitism and the Holocaust, Language, Rhetoric, and the Traditions of Hatred. And we will be discussing this with Dr. Brian Williams on race, violence, and medicine. Welcome to Race, Violence, and Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Brian H. Williams, and we are now into season two of the program. Thank you for continuing this journey with me. So our guest today is the esteemed Dr. Beth Greek Polelli. She is the Kurt Meyer Chair of Holocaust Studies at Pacific Lutheran University. And we're going to discuss her book today, Anti-Semitism and the Holocaust. Dr. Greek Polelli, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, and please just call me Beth. All right, and you can call me Brian. How about that? Okay, that's a good training. Good so this is like the third time's a charm. We've, we've tried to get this done twice in the past. Once fell apart due to technical issues and another had a family emergency. So I appreciate your patience and your willingness to come get this show done. <laughs> It's my pleasure. I really appreciate you having me on. All right. So, Beth, let's just start. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Um, well, let's see. I got my Ph.D. in 1999 from Rutgers University, and I've been very, very fortunate. I taught for about 15 years out at Bowling Green State University in Ohio, and then I was offered the endowed mayor chair of Holocaust Studies at Pacific Lutheran University about four years ago. So I relocated to Washington State to the beautiful Pacific Northwest, and that's where I'm currently uh, a professor of uh, history with a specialty in the Holocaust and modern German history. So what got you interested in that particular field of study? You know, it really goes back to, I think, a combination of things. Um, I always loved history as a kid, and I remember watching kind of the World at Wars television series on PBS with my father at night. But I think what really kind of clinched it for me was as an undergraduate, uh, I went to a very small all women's, at the time, all women's Catholic college called Chestnut Hill College in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And I had an outstanding professor uh, named John Lukash, and he taught a course called Nazi Germany and that just hooked me in. I, you know, it was a topic that I would never get tired of. Every time you think that the Nazis can't shock you or surprise you, you get a new book in the mail, read it, and think, oh my gosh, I can't believe they did that too. Uh, so I, I knew I had found the topic that I wanted to study because it is never boring. It also really captures all the drama of the human experience, right? It's a, a terrible time and you're going to see the worst of humanity, but you're also going to see glimmers of the best of humanity. And so it really, I think, spoke to me on many different levels as a, as a topic of study. So I, I, you're, you don't have Jewish ancestry, is that correct? That's correct. I'm Catholic. 
Um, but it's, you know, it's just such a fascinating topic. And most of what I write about uh, very specifically has to do with the Catholic Church leadership, the bishops, the cardinals, and so forth, the, the hierarchy of the church in Nazi Germany. Um, but the recent book that we're talking about, anti-Semitism and the Holocaust, really came out of a result of having the opportunity to teach so many hundreds and hundreds of students uh, the history of the Holocaust. And so that book really is out of all of my years of teaching this and, you know, figuring out what do students of history most want to know about the Holocaust? What are they trying to understand? And of course, part of what they're trying to understand is how could average, decent, regular people uh, perpetrate such terrible crimes against other human beings? And so this book was really my attempt to try to give people a window into how I teach courses on the history of the Holocaust. Well, I, I picked up your book after seeing you speak at the Dallas Holocaust Museum. And what you just said about, oh, there's an, always a new book that teaches something new. That, that was what your book did for me, because I oh, thought I knew good. a lot. And there's something in there that I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what really stood out to me, I mean, a lot of things, but as a, as a surgeon, as a doctor, you talk about the, the ease with which they were able to recruit medical professionals to assist in the Holocaust. Yes. Can you tell us more about that? Yes, it, it really is quite shocking. And I think uh, when I was a graduate student at Rutgers, my dissertation was an exploration of a, a Roman Catholic uh, man who was a bishop, who then later, after World War II ended, was made a cardinal. And he became very famous during the war for denouncing the Nazis' so-called euthanasia program, right, where they're attempting to uh, sell to the German public that uh, mentally ill and physically handicapped children and adults, uh, really, you should really let them die because it's a mercy killing, right? That they don't have a life and so forth. And that was what really got me started on studying so much more intensely about the Nazis uh, and the, the role of the medical profession. And it really was very disappointing and very shocking to see that doctors and nurses uh, really, in many cases, seized that opportunity under Hitler's regime uh, to really make determinations over who was worthy of living and who was unworthy. And doctors really held an exalted position within the Third Reich system of killing people, right? That every time uh, I think most people are familiar with the image of a cattle car crammed full of Jewish victims rolling up to a concentration camp such as Auschwitz. But what they probably don't recognize or, or know is that a medical doctor of the camp was required to be present every time a deportation train arrived at a concentration camp. And it was the doctors who stood and separated families from other family members. And it was doctors who had to determine who was going to at least live temporarily as forced slave labor in a camp, or who would be sent to directly to the gas chambers to their death on that day of arrival. 
Um, but doctors were so deeply enmeshed in the eugenics movement, uh, the idea of racial hierarchies, of worthiness of certain races over others. Uh, and of course, not all doctors did this. I don't want to paint the, the picture that all doctors were on board with this. Uh, but the Nazis didn't need every single doctor to be on board with it. They needed a core of people who did believe that they could determine who was racially superior. And then from that, then destroy the lives of people that they had put into that category of being racially inferior. Uh, so it is, it is very shocking. Um, on the upside, there are very good examples of doctors who were selfless, who risked their lives and who gave their lives uh, attempting to save people. Um, and that's kind of the, the yin and yang of studying the Nazis, right? That there will be the terrible examples, but then there's also that kind of, as I said before, that glimmer of hope that there were always people who recognized evil when they saw it and they refused to go along with it. But for those people, they were the minority and, and that was no different for in the case of doctors as well. Right, and I, that, that gets a good point to, to emphasize that there is always heroes even during when the worst atrocities are occurring. Right. I just, I couldn't even fathom as a doctor taking the Hippocratic Oath to even consider that I would participate in this, you know, those, those types of inhumane uh, atrocities. And that it seems to be that they had uh, plenty of volunteers, that they were turning people away. <laughs> they did. Yeah, you know, I mean, really, uh, unfortunately, again, it's one of those situations where for many people, it was a career move, right? That if you were willing to set aside moral and ethical uh, and professional uh, violations of a code of conduct, that you could have career advancement. Um, and for some of them, it's also kind of a calculation where you know, when the war is going on, which would, where would you rather be? Would you rather be in the safety of a protected position as a doctor in a concentration camp where you have the power to experiment on people, whether they want to be experimented on or not? Or do you want to be sent as a doctor to the front lines in a medical uh, evacuation unit where you might get bombed and killed? And so for some of them, it's also a calculation of their own survival, right? Let's just stay in a camp in a privileged position rather than risking our lives on the battle lines. Uh, so right. there's so many uh, layers to, I think, the decisions. And you kind of have to look at the doctors on a case-by-case -case, uh, basis. But really, it truly is um, breathtaking when you look at the level of violations of what we especially in today's world take for uh, just from the, the, the this code of conduct of uh, Hippocratic Oath and first do no harm uh, it really is quite shocking uh, but for many of these doctors they really truly believed in the justness of their cause right this idea that somehow by murdering uh, you know starving and mentally ill children to death uh, was a, a positive good for German society. And so it, it really boggles the mind when you think about the kind of mental contortions that people must have been putting themselves through 
to rationalize what it was that they were carrying out. Um, but many, many doctors went on at the end of the war, many of them, they, some of them were put on trial. There was a, a, a Nuremberg doctor's trial. Uh, so some did receive punishment, but there were other doctors who simply were allowed to go right back into civilian life and right. continued practicing medicine. Right. You can't see me, Beth, but I'm sitting here with my head in my hand, just shaking my head in just disbelief. Even, even though I've, I, I knew about this, I read about it in your book, <laughs> hearing it again, I just cannot, uh, just cannot fathom that. But I want to follow up where you mentioned the, the eugenics yeah. in Germany and this, uh, this talk about um, the racial hierarchy and who gets to live and die. And you touched about the, when you spoke, you touched upon the eugenics movement in the U.S., which actually predated uh, the Holocaust and that connection. Right. Can you talk about um, the connection there, the similarities, and whether there's any connection between what happened in the U.S. prior to World War II and what happened in Nazi right. Germany? Yes. Well, I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't count myself an expert in the American eugenics movement, but as it relates to the influence that it had over German physicians, uh, I, I would say you really can't underestimate that uh, in America in the 1920s, there were, I believe, about 29 states that already had forced sterilization laws on the books for mentally retarded individuals. Um, and that would have been the language they would have used. I know today we would say mentally disabled or mental, but they would have called them mentally retarded individuals. And many, particularly in the, the field of psychiatry in Germany, were looking at America and what the American eugenics movement was doing. And they were very worried that America was so-called uh, solving its negative population problem faster and that America would kind of outstrip Germany uh, as far as getting rid of mentally deficient people mentally handicapped people and so forth. And so there was a, a huge push, uh, particularly in the realm of uh, German psychiatry to catch up to the eugenics movement in America. And so throughout the 1920s, and of course this was before Hitler became the leader of Germany, he, he won't be in power until 1933. But for many of these leading physicians, many of them were trying to really basically lobby government officials uh, to try to get them to incorporate eugenics ideas about uh, what they call negative eugenics, meaning you discourage uh, the wrong kind of people from having too many uh, children, and positive eugenics where you encourage the so-called right kind of people, and put that all in air quotes, right, the right people to have as many children as possible. Um, and Hitler was a strong follower of the eugenics movement. And when he became the leader of Germany in 1933, many of these eugenicists just absolutely rejoiced because they said, this is a guy who really understands racial policies. And uh, they were more than willing to work alongside of Hitler to get their ideas uh, realized and put into practice. And we also can, cannot understate the importance of anti-Black eugenics that was occurring in the United exactly. States. 
Yes, exactly. And for the, there's, um, you know, I think that for Hitler, when he began really more openly persecuting Jews and once he was in power, uh, whenever he received criticism from the United States of America, all he had to do was point, turn around and say, well, how do you treat black people in America, right? Why is it okay for uh, blacks to have a different water fountain because whites don't want to drink out of the same water fountain. Why is it that uh, blacks should walk in the gutters or the streets and whites should have the sidewalks? He's, in many respects, I mean, he is saying, I'm doing the same thing to the Jewish population that America has been doing to black people, right? And so uh, there are really many parallels uh, about what they were doing. And there, there's, um, a relatively new book out. I, I can't think of the, the author's name right now. He uh, had written a book about the influence of American uh, eugenics movement on the Nazis. And in his book, he argues, um, I think his name is James Q. Whitman is the author's name. Um, and he argues that in many cases, the German doctors felt that the American legal system was going too far in its Jim Crow laws and, and so on and so forth. Uh, so I think that, you know, it's really an interesting area for people to think about that it was difficult uh, for Americans to point a finger at the persecution of Jews and discriminations against Jews in the early 30s in Germany, because we were in America doing the same thing to all, not only blacks, but other minority populations as well. Um, and Hitler knew that, right? And so he was very, very shrewd as far as turning people's actions and words against themselves uh, and, and knowing that that would be an Achilles heel for them. It just goes to show you the absurdity of racism when you think about it in that context. You just can't exactly. deny it. Right, right. All right, so we're going to take a quick break. We are interviewing... Dr. Beth Greek Polelli. She is the author of the book Anti Semitism and the Holocaust, and it's a Kurt Meyer Chair of Holocaust Studies at Pacific Lutheran University. You are listening to Race, Violence, and Medicine. Stick with us. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Race, Violence, and Medicine. I am Dr. Brian H. Williams. We are with Dr. Beth Greek Polelli, author of the book Anti Semitism and the Holocaust. She is the Kurt Meyer, Chair of Holocaust Studies at Pacific Lutheran University. So Beth, before the break, we talked about the role of healthcare professionals in the Holocaust and the connections between uh, United uh, eugenics movement in the U.S. with that in Germany. Uh, I'd like to go back and talk about more of the history of anti-Semitism and how that came about. Uh, in your book, you make this distinction between religious anti-Semitism versus political anti-Semitism. And for a listener that doesn't make any distinction, how would you uh, clarify that and why, that, why it is important to see the difference? Okay. Uh, yeah, the, the, and this is part of how I teach the class is that we, we walk, I, I try to walk students through um, that there's so many different uh, types of discrimination and persecution. And really from, from the historian's perspective, one of the first ways in which we can pinpoint Jews being singled out from other populations is in the ancient world. 
And with particularly the, the rise of Christianity as a dominant religion uh, throughout the, the ancient Roman Empire, what we begin to find is uh, as Christianity gains in prominence and stature, meaning more and more important people are converting to Catholicism and uh, embracing Christianity, they want to distinguish themselves from competing religions. And so we begin to see a real uh, uh, outpouring of stereotypes and kind of the origin of so many legends and myths about Jews that are rooted in this early time period. And the, at the heart of it is the notion that if Jews would just stop being Jews and convert to Christianity, then there wouldn't be a Jewish problem. And so the idea is to uh, attack Jews for being different, uh, for having different customs, for have eating different foods from Christians, from staying separate from Christians. Uh, and so part of this is religiously based, right? So the idea is if a Jew would just stop being a Jew and convert to our religion, Christianity, then we wouldn't have a problem with them. And so that's really at the heart, the essence of religious anti-Semitism, that it's some kind of, it's a religious difference, it's a religious argument uh, that Jews are being stubborn and not recognizing Jesus as the Messiah. And if they would just do that final step, if they would just recognize Jesus as the Messiah, then they would convert to Christianity and there would be harmony and unity in the world, right? Um, right, so then we get to a point where, Converting is not enough. Right, exactly, right. And so, like, and, and so we, we can leap ahead by centuries and we're gonna see the rise of what we might call political anti-Semitism. And this is when you have the rise of political leaders who say, well, yes, it, it is, you know, Jews are, are uh, not willing to convert and so forth, but it's really, uh, Jews are corrupting, uh, they're corrupting our society. Basically every problem that a person that's a Christian faces in their life is because of the Jews, uh, that they have manipulated and controlled the economics and, and the media and so forth. And so these political leaders are really demagogues who want to play on people's fears about the future and what the future holds for them. And they use this language of blaming people's everyday problems on the existence of the Jews. And so we're kind of moving into away from just saying, well, if a Jew would just convert and become a Christian, then it wouldn't be a problem. Now it's something deeper because they, these political anti-Semites are going to begin to say that even if a Jew has converted to Christianity, many of them would believe, well, secretly, they're still a Jew. And this leads us into racial anti-Semitism, which connects up again with the eugenics movement, that there's something inherent in your blood that carries your characteristics, your qualities that make you who you are. And therefore, being Jewish is in your blood and it's inescapable. Um, and that, can, that comes ultimately in the Nazi time period with a death sentence, right? Because you could say, I don't think of myself as being a Jew. I had a grandfather that was a Jew, but I'm a Christian and I go to church every single day and I've never gone to a synagogue or a Jewish temple to worship. And the Nazis would say, that doesn't matter because it's what is in your blood. 
your blood makes you Jewish and that means you have Jewish qualities. And so there's no way to convince a Nazi that you're not a Jew if they say you have some ancestry or heritage of Jewishness in, in your family tree. Uh, and Hitler so, kept continued to change the move the needle, right? He would say, okay, if your mother was a Jew, then you're Jewish. Or if your father was a Jew, it, <laughs> right. it changed with the times to exactly. serve his purposes. Yes, and, and it would go back, depending on, in Nazi Germany in 1935, it became a law that everyone in Germany, every, every single person had to carry seven pieces of documentation with them at all times. And that included your birth certificate, which of course had your name and date of birth, but it would also have had your parents' names and the religion that your parents declared for you when you were born. Then you'd have to carry both of your parents' birth certificates and then all four of your grandparents' birth certificates. And if any Nazi official or police officer stopped you on the street and demanded that you take out those documents and they would then be able to look and say, aha, you had one Jewish grandmother, so you're a Jew. Right, um, right. And, and for other professions, uh, you had to trace your ancestry of being not Jewish uh, back further, hundreds of years, say, if you wanted to be an, an officer in the SS, the elite uh, black-shirted, uh, uniformed, uh, originally the bodyguards of Hitler that ultimately come to run the concentration camp system, you had to go back hundreds of years to prove that you were not of Jewish ancestry. And this is, you required, you had to go to what was called a family researcher. The family researcher had to go through all of the different documents and, and registries to verify that you were who you said you were and they would go back into these different generations so that you could have proper documentation. Beth, I mean, you're describing so many parallels to you know, anti-Black racism that is a global phenomenon because you talk about, especially with multiracial uh, mm -hmm. individuals, if you have any drop of Black blood that makes you Black, exactly. <laughs> like that, was, that was codified. Yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, well, and, 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 and even in Nazi Germany, of course, I mean, I focus specifically on, on Jewish discrimination, but you could find that Hitler in this eugenics program uh, made an effort to round up the children of, who were biracial uh, that, re that resulted from when France occupied part of German territory at the end of the First World War, some of the French colonial so soldiers were from Algeria. So they were right. African. And right. these soldiers often had relationships with white German women. They had biracial children. And in the eugenics movement under Hitler's direction, uh, he said he wanted to sterilize what he called the Rhineland bastards, these biracial children, so that they couldn't contaminate, in his words, more white German blood, right? So, yeah, there's, I mean, a whole area of, of this type of persecution uh, that, that's going on uh, that extends beyond just the Jewish community, right? I mean, there's so many groups of people uh, that are being persecuted by the Nazis. I, I once had a student raise their hand in a class and say, it just seems like the Nazis persecuted almost everybody who, <laughs> who, who was left to be a Nazi. And I was like, yeah, that, 
that's a good point. I mean, you could go, they're going to, going after homosexuals. They're going after uh, the Sinti and the Roma, what we might call gypsies. Uh, they're going after Jehovah's Witnesses. They're going after just, I mean, the list goes on and on of how many people Hitler had really deemed unfit, racially unfit to be a part of his people's community. Right. So the, uh, the subtitle of your book, Beth, is The Language, Rhetoric, and the Traditions of Hatred. Yes. So can you, what parallels do you draw to current times with what you talk about in your book and in your, in your classes? Right. Well, what I, what I try to do is through my teaching of how did all of these myths and legends and stereotypes about Jewish people, how did they develop? Where can we as historians pinpoint, where did this story about Jews all have hidden wealth? Jews all are in an international conspiracy to destroy Christian civilization. You know, I look at where all of these, these legends, where did they develop? How did they develop? And then they take on a life of their own. And my hope is that for students that by the time we reach the end of the semester, not only do they know a whole lot about the history of anti-Semitism, the persecution of Jews, but that they're also able to make connections about how do we use language and that, you know, when your kids, you're, you're like, oh, sticks and stones won't break my bones, uh, will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Well, what I argue is that the names will hurt you, right? Because the more that we label and put people into categories and use that, that power of language, it empowers people to then take action based on that, the, that powerful hate-filled language. And so my hope for students, um, whenever they're, they're in class with me, is that they're able to think about, you know, how are people being portrayed, particularly when they're all lumped together in a group? And how does that then lead to possibly life-threatening circumstances uh, for those minority groups that are being targeted. And so at least that's, uh, I always have students who raise their hand and, and draw modern day, you know, well, I heard this on the news and so forth. So we can, we talk about that in class. Um, but my hope is that just from them going through a whole semester of thinking about boy, where do these, where are the origins of these stories coming from? And what was the motivation behind them? And then what are the consequences of that kind of hateful language that they're able to at least stop themselves from falling into that same kind of, of trap that they just buy into how people are being portrayed. And that instead they should think about people as individuals um, I once met a, a Holocaust survivor and uh, had him speak uh, back in, in Ohio, and I had a student ask him, do you hate all Germans? And he, he thought for a moment, and this was a man who had been in uh, the Wudge ghetto for years, saw his entire family, uh, except for one brother, starved to death, and then was sent to Auschwitz concentration camp, and then was on a death march and was able to survive all of that. And, you know, I think you could understand if the man would have come back and said, yeah, I still hate all Germans. But instead, he just, he looked at the student and he said, you know, I met good Germans and bad Germans, 
just like I met good Polish people and bad Polish people. And all that matters to me is what's in their heart and are they decent? And I try to remind students to take people on an individual basis and to move away from categorizing people into groups, uh, particularly groups that are, are then attached to all of these negative stereotypes and racist imagery. So even though your expertise is anti-Semitism, you have a message that's universal for any group that's marginalized or otherized and, yes. um, okay. Yeah. And I do recall when you talked, you said another big difference is when that was happening, there were, nobody protested, nobody spoke up right. against what was happening. Exactly. But that seems to be happening, that happens a lot here in the U.S. So that right. should give us some hope. <laughs> We don't live uh, as, uh, you know, as, as people sometimes go to the hyperbole of it's a dictatorship of the president. But in reality, we are a much freer society than the German people were in the 1930s under Hitler. Right. right. He was a dictator and he was made legal dictator in March of 1933. And so people... Were, he was able to convince German people that they were in an emergency crisis and that he would take this temporary dictatorship only until the problems were solved and it took away basic freedom of speech, freedom of the press, and so forth. And people were willing to trade a promise of order and stability for their freedoms, right? because they thought it was going to be temporary. But here, I mean, we have the freedom. We have people that can take to the streets. We have freedom of the press. And so it's not really a, it, quite an easy comparison for me to make, right? Because right. I think that we, we do enjoy the opportunity that we can publish, uh, we can say jokes about Donald Trump and not get arrested. But in Nazi Germany, if you complained, I'll give you a real example, a father at, at breakfast complained about the price of butter and one of his children, you know, they were all at, at breakfast and the kids hear dad complain to mom about how expensive butter is. The child goes to school and says out loud about how his dad complained about the price of butter and the teacher denounces the father for being anti-Hitler because to complain about the price of butter means that you don't support Hitler. And the father's arrested and taken away. Right. right. And that's a true story. So, you know, we don't, we don't have that kind of fear factor of, that you can go out and make remarks in public and not be dragged away from your bed in the middle of the night. Right. But that, but that was a reality for many people in Nazi Germany. Well, Dr. Beth Greek Palele, thank you for joining us today. I appreciate all of your insights. Well, I, I thank you for inviting me on. It, it's a, a rare treat for a historian to have some kind of larger audience than just a college <laughs> student. Well, I don't, I don't know how large my audience is, Beth, but uh, <laughs> I know I have at least one. I know my mother listens to the show, so you got at least one well, person out here that, that will hear you. Tell her, thank you so much. That's the really one person that I've touched it and reached out to that to say, how do I get an A? <laughs> right. So how can we reach you out to the show? If, somebody, if, if my mom wants to get a hold of you, for follow-up okay, questions. That's right. um, I would say uh, to Pacific Lutheran University's webpage, uh, so it's PLU, 
uh, for Pacific Lutheran University, and you can just click on uh, the history department, or you could go to the uh, mayor uh, chair of Holocaust studies, and that's the best way for people to to contact me. Is just it will have my email address, um, and it's my address is Greek G R I E C H B A for Beth Ann at plu.edu and that would be the best way to reach me if people want to continue the conversation i'd be happy to to speak with them especially your mom <laughs> <laughs> my mom will talk your ear off dr dr Palella, so watch out so, <laughs> anti-semitism and the holocaust the language of rhetoric and traditions of hatred uh, i picked up this book on amazon so i'm sure you can go do the same when i'll put this information on the show notes on the website you can check that out brianwilliamsmd.com that's brian with an i also this podcast is available anywhere you get your podcast so please share it with your family and friends i appreciate you tuning in to the show that will conclude our interview for today thank you <laughs>